Today's reading comes from the Epistle of First Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome. Um, Before I begin, I just want to uh, ask that uh, today is going to be the last chance to um, sign up for the trip to the Dominican Republic. Uh, right now, uh, we don't really have enough people wanting to go. And so if we can't get any more interest today, um, we're going to cancel the trip. So if you have any interest at all, uh, today's the day to let Mina, uh, I think she's not here, oh, Mina's in the back. Um, if you could just let her know if you have any interest at all, um, today would be the last day, really, because it is already uh, mid-April, and we do need to make a decision uh, very soon on that. Um, I didn't get a chance to thank the youth group for the awesome video last week, so thank you. Um, if you didn't see it, too bad. Um, it's not going to be available, however, um, if you know a youth group member, you might ask them to show it to you. Apparently, they only have access to it. So, um, But if you haven't seen it, it's, it's awesome. Um, anyway, all right. So um, welcome again. We are continuing our pilgrimage through the New City Catechism. And so let's begin with a reviewing, uh, beginning with question 20. Who is the Redeemer? Come on, that's a short one. You should know that one by now. Twenty-one. What sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? Okay. Um, I want to let you know we are going to skip question twenty-three and twenty-four uh, because twenty-two and twenty-three, uh, much like we skipped a few questions when we did the Decalogue, uh, kind of I don't think it adds a whole lot. Question twenty-two is why must the redeemer be truly human? And question twenty-three is why must the redeemer be truly God. And so uh, I think 21, what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God, I think kind of covers that well enough. And so uh, we're going to just skip 22 and 23 and go right to 24. Now, uh, as you know, with question 20, we ended the first section of the catechism, and we're now in the second section, which is really concerning the, the work of Jesus Christ. And the pastoral staff and I, we had a chance to uh, meet last week to discuss 
the first section, how it went, and thinking about the second section. And during the first section, I was very reluctant to make any changes to the catechism because I wanted you to have the advantage of the songs and to learn the catechism using the songs. In our meeting, I discovered, and it became uh, very clear, that with the exception of three people, no one is really listening to the songs. So to those three people, I, I apologize. Um, but to everyone else, as we're not really making use of the songs, um, I feel at liberty to modify and revise the catechism uh, in this second section. In fact, um, can I get the next slide up for number 24? <clears throat> so, as I said in the very beginning, the catechism is designed with answers for both adults and for children. And as you can see, today's question, why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? The full answer that the adults are supposed to memorize is that first paragraph. Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he alone redeems us from hell and gains for us forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. I, I know no one wants to memorize that, right? That, that's an important truth, but I know you're, you're not going to memorize it. So that's why we've been memorizing the children's version, which is that next line. Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. Now, that's the shorter children's version, but what's also become clear to us as we discuss this among our staff is that the children uh, are fine with memorizing. They're, they're, they're not having any issues memorizing. However, their parents are really struggling with it. So we have decided as a staff, we're going to make a shorter-er version. So instead of memorizing the children's version, all of us, including the children, are now going to memorize the shorter-er version. So can I have the next slide? So question, why was it necessary for Christ, the Redeemer, to die, to deliver us from sin, and bring us back to God? Okay? Let's do that again. Why was it necessary for the Christ, the Redeemer, to die? Right, it's got a nice little rhythm to it too, right? It's, so that's what we're going to do. So uh, moving forward, um, that's what we're going to try to do. So we're going to uh, condense it to make it a... We, we want to keep the spirit of it, and we, we don't want to like strip away the truth of it, but we do want to make it as simple as possible to encourage you, to encourage you to please uh, really make an effort to, to memorize um, the catechism uh, as we move forward. All right? All right, let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, this day that you have made. And today, God, we get a chance to just review the gospel, um, to think together about why it's necessary that Jesus, our Redeemer, had to die. So God, make this truth, just, just impress this truth upon our hearts. Um, let, let this be the truth, the foundational truth uh, on which we can build our lives. Thank you, God. Thank you so much for dying for our sins and bringing us back to you. Because it's not something that we could have done for ourselves. Amen.
All right, so in the reading today, as you heard, Paul gets at the very essential thing of our faith, what he calls, this is of first importance. This is the core message of the Christian faith, the foundation of everything, the gospel in a nutshell, verses 3 through 5. There are four that's. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve and then to this uh, long list of other witnesses. This is the gospel. It says this is what has to get passed on. This is what I've preached to you. And generation after generations of preachers and uh, pastors and Christians and missionaries, this is it. Notice that the core of the Christian message, there is no mention of Jesus' authoritative teaching. There's nothing here about his prophetic words to political and religious powers. There is nothing even here of life-changing, miraculous healings and his you know, crowd-amazing miracles. There's none of that here. The core of the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The world would prefer that the core message of our faith be something like love your neighbors. We can all get on board with that. But it isn't. The gospel, the stumbling block of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins and he has been raised in accordance with the scriptures. This is the message that was proclaimed. This is the message that we have received. And this is the message upon which we Stand. It's what holds us together as a community of faith. Even though we are divided in many ways, politically, socially, economically, even theologically, even though we do not live out our faith loving one another as much and as deeply as we should, we stand together in this affirmation of truth, the gospel. That before God calls us to anything, God tells us and reminds us again here of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. That he died for our sins and was buried in accordance with the scriptures. If I could drop a mic, now would be the time to do it. Um, There are four that's. There are four that's to the gospel, he says. But it's really just two, and the two are the, you know, the two sides of one coin. Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then the second that is that, that he was buried. And this only reinforces the first statement, that he died. He really, really died. He was buried. Right? It, it, in case you have any doubt, he died. He was buried. You know, all those people who want to suggest that he only, you know, seemed to die or that somehow he was, he fainted or, or you know, was resuscitated after the cross, like any of that nonsense, no, he died. He was buried. There were many witnesses to his death. And so there, there ought to be no dispute, there ought to be no doubt about this, this fact. He had to die, and he did. The third that is that he was raised on the third day, again, in accordance with the scriptures. Just as he really, really died and was buried, he was really raised to life. I know that this is much more difficult to believe 
than the fact that he died. But the next that is that, that he was seen by hundreds of witnesses. Those witnesses have since died, and so we don't have access to them. And so this may not be as compelling or as persuasive for us, but their testimony continues in the scriptures and with the ongoing testimony of the church. The resurrection vindicates the death of Jesus, that he didn't simply die some heroic death, that he didn't simply die um, you know, because he got caught by the, the Romans. He died for a purpose, for our sins. And the fact that God raised him from the dead is proof that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, in accordance with the will of God. Now today, because of the catechism question, I just want to talk through that first that, that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now, the scriptures for Paul here, obviously, is only the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And those scriptures foretold the suffering of Christ Messiah for the forgiveness of sins throughout. It is in accordance with the will of God from the very beginning. The Apostle Peter's first sermon in Jerusalem says, uh, he said this during his sermon. He said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God was not an accident. This was, this was in the plan of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, and God raised him up. And so again, we, we see here the core of the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus is not an accident of history. It is the plan and the foreknowledge of God. Jesus was not the victim of the Roman Empire. He was not the victim of political and religious conspiracy. It is the climax of God's saving act in history. And Jesus himself, after the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, told a couple of his disciples who were wondering about the meaning of his death, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary, necessary, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So he, he goes back all the way to the beginning, to Genesis, and works all the way through the scriptures to show that the Messiah, the Christ, had to suffer. And, and we can see this, right? Beginning with uh, Genesis, we go very, to the very beginning in Genesis 3, verse 15. The first sort of prophetic word that is made, the first word of promise of redemption, is that the serpent would bruise the seed of Eve on the heel, but then that that seed, who is to come, would crush the serpent on the head. That's the first promise that we have of our redemption, that he would be hurt, but then he would defeat Satan. Secondly, we have then, we can move to the book of Exodus, and the entire story of the Passover is, again, a reminder of this, that those who cover their doorposts with blood of an unblemished lamb became the sign of rescue and deliverance, that those who trusted in the blood of the lamb were saved, and that symbol led to the entire sacrifice system in which animals took on, in substitution, the sins of the people. 
Leviticus, once a year, the uh, high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and would sacrifice a goat, again, as a symbol, as a substitute for the punishment and the sins of the nation that would be delivered from that sin. In the book of Numbers, we have the people again sinning against God, complaining to God, and so God sends these poisonous snakes, and God has Moses build a bronze serpent, and anyone who looks upon that servant was saved. Again, those who trusted in God's deliverance, and Jesus himself alludes to that, and he says, you know, just as Moses lifted up the snakes, so must I be raised up. Psalm 22, King David wrote prophetically about the suffering of the Messiah. He wrote that evil men would pierce his hands and feet, that his heart would melt like wax, that his life would be poured out like water while people stared and gloated over him. Isaiah 52 and 53, we saw the description of the one who would be pierced for our transgressions, the one who would bear all of our iniquities, would suffer on our behalf. The prophet Zechariah said, they will look on me, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. Again and again, throughout the scriptures, we see the promises, the prophecies of the one who is to come, the one who will deliver us, the Messiah who will suffer and die for our sins. And so Jesus in his death fulfilled all of that in accordance with the scriptures. All of the covenants, all of the law, all of the entire sacrificial system anticipates the coming of the Messiah who will deliver us from our sins. And, uh, you know, over the centuries, people have tried to work out how does God deliver? How does this Jesus, how does the Christ, the Messiah, deliver us from sin and bring us back to God? And over the centuries, a number of different ideas have been uh, offered. Beginning in the second century, uh, a, a preacher by the name of uh, Irenaeus advanced this idea of recapitulation that just as Adam represented the whole human race and that in his sin we all sin so in Christ who represents the new humanity in him as we were all dead in Adam we are now made alive in Jesus other early church leaders advanced this idea of Christ the victor or this idea of uh, a ransom and ransom theory that Jesus was the ransom paid, given to the devil to redeem us and to save us, right? That Jesus acted kind of like, think of it as a bait. And when the devil took the bait, realizing that he thought he was, you know, getting something, but it was actually a way to take the power away from Satan, to defeat death by using Jesus as a ransom, in the Middle Ages, two other theories became very popular, and some advanced this idea of uh, satisfaction, that Jesus paid the penalty or made satisfaction to God, that our sin dishonors God, and that Christ and his sacrifice became a substitute to restore God's honor. And then Abelard advanced what's known as the moral influence theory, where Jesus' death on the cross demonstrated for us the depth of God's love and that his life and sacrifice sets then an example for us to repent and to live, that he took upon our nature and taught us how to live in a loving way even to the point of death. Now, there, there, these and other theories, they're all fine to some extent. There's some truth to all of them. But in our Reformed tradition... 
It is our understanding and our emphasis has always been on this idea of substitutionary atonement. I know that's a big word, but as the uh, catechism states, right, by his substitutionary atoning death, Jesus alone redeems us. He alone redeemed us by his substitutionary atoning death. That is, he became our substitute in his death to make us at one atone with God. He died in our place. His willingness to die for us shows us the depth of God's love for us. Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. The love of Christ led him to the cross to die for us. And this idea that Christ died in our place is, you know, it's all over the New Testament. That, that's, that's the main idea for us, that Christ died in our place. Now, <clears throat> I think the simplest way that this, you can understand this or think about this, and this is what um, theologians have, have um, suggested as the primary way of thinking about this, is that the cross, is that the cross is the way that God reconciled his mercy with his justice. That at the cross, God's laws, God's justice was reconciled with God's mercy and his love. For example, suppose one of my kids is, um, this is not a real example. Suppose one of my kids um, is playing outside and they're playing baseball and they throw the ball and it breaks a neighbor's window. It's like something from the 50s. Um, now, my child is guilty for that damage. But what will happen? Right? My child will tell me, Dad, I threw the baseball and I broke, you know, Mr. Larry's window. So my child and I will go over to our neighbor. My child will apologize. I will apologize. And I will pay for that window, right? Why? Because damage has been done. My child is responsible. But because I love my child, not at that moment, but because I love my child, I will pay in his or her place what is owed. That's the way it will play out, right? I will become the substitute. I will make the payment on their behalf. Now, it's possible that my neighbor could be a really cool neighbor and say, it's okay, it's just an accident. I'll pay for my window. You don't have to worry about it. But somebody has to pay for that window. It's broken. Somebody has to take on that loss. That's the substitution. Or consider a more extreme case. I, I, I'm not telling you this uh, as parenting advice. This is just a story that I've heard repeatedly uh, from multiple people. Um, so... This is just an example. Um, I first heard this story from a pastor, uh, a Korean pastor, um, and he was telling us about a time when he was a kid and he did something really bad and he got caught by his dad and he, and he was, you know, he was just a little kid. And so uh, his dad says, you know, you did something wrong and you, you have to be punished because you know you're not supposed to do that. So the kid says, yeah, uh, yeah, I know. So his dad told him, I want you to go to the backyard 
and I want you to get a stick so I can spank you with it. So the child went into the backyard, he found the tree or you know whatever, uh, broke off a stick, brought it home to his dad, and so as you know, and his dad explained to him, you know, did something wrong, you know, I love you, but I still have to, you still have to be punished. And so the father took the stick and he was about to like, you know, just spank his son, but the father was just overcome with just, just pity and love for his child and, and he couldn't do it. He just couldn't spank him. And so he gave the stick to his son. He says, you know, you have to be punished, but, but I can't do this, but there has to be punishment. So I want you to spank me instead. I will take the punishment that you're supposed to take and I want you to spank me. Right? And so the child t- takes the stick, a little kid, and, and he's like, he can't, he can't, he can't do it, right? He's, he's like, so now what happens? Like, everyone's just crying, right? And he kind of just taps his dad a little bit, right? And well, wow, what a great illustration, right? Um, now, I, first time I heard that, I thought, that's kind of cool. Then I thought, that's kind of messed up. Um, <laughs> but I've heard this story, and, you know, there are people in this church who have had this experience with their parents. Um, it's, it's almost like a, like a Korean parenting skill that somehow got, you know, I missed out on. I, a small part of me f- feels like I missed out. Like, I, I didn't, that didn't happen to me. Uh, just, just a small part. Um, but that, that's one way of thinking about this, right? Of this idea of substitutionary atonement. We deserve the punishment. There has to be punishment because something, the law, or something has been broken. There is, there is loss incurred. And someone has to pay for that. And Jesus took that payment, what was due for our sins, upon himself. He voluntarily, willingly went to the cross. As he said, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Now, you might be wondering, and you know, skeptics and those who uh, are critics of Christianity have asked, well, why doesn't God just, just forgive everybody? Why does anybody have to be punished? Like in that example of the father, why does the father have to get hit? Why can't he just say, hey, you know what? You made a mistake. Let's just, let's, no one has to get hit. No one, no one has to get spanked. Why does God have to have this sort of extreme, right? I mean, it's the, it's the ultimate, most extreme example to have his only son die on the cross. Why do you have to do that? Why can't we just extend forgiveness? Well, I think a part of that is because there has to be some sort of justice. If I am guilty of something and I am released from that guilt, then justice has not been exercised. Now, I'm going to feel great about it, right? I get caught for a speeding ticket. I did something wrong, but I'm released. I feel great. It's, a, it's not a big deal, right? If I cheat on a test and I get an A and I don't get caught, that's great. Or if I get caught, but the teacher said, you know what, it's okay, I'll let you keep the A. No problem. That's great for me, but it's bad for everybody else. Everyone else is going to complain. It's not fair. It's not fair. And so then what if the teacher says, well, you know what, everybody gets an A. You can cheat if you want. You can study if you want. It doesn't matter. Everybody gets an A. Well, then, then you can't have that. It's not going to work. Then, right, then there's no law. There's, there's complete chaos. Someone steals your car and, and, and beats you up. There's no justice for you. Well, you know, just everybody gets forgiven. So, so we don't want that. We, we want some sort of justice and fairness. There, there is a sense that we have to have that. 
But then we also want mercy. Think about it this way. I think this is the way that I've been thinking about it that's, um, that's been helpful for me. I know all of us have experienced a time when we had to ask someone for forgiveness because we did something wrong. Or we had to forgive someone because they asked of us to be forgiven, right? We've, we've, maybe not some of the younger ones, but, you know, if, we've all had the experience where we either had to forgive someone or we had to ask to be forgiven because of some, some wrongdoing. Now, suppose you, ask, suppose you ask me to borrow my Bible. I say, yeah, sure, you know, you can, you can borrow this Bible. Um, but, I, but I tell you, you know, that it's just a book, but this Bible is kind of special to me because it's the, the first gift my wife gave to me. It's not, but let's suppose. Okay, suppose this Bible has sentimental value because it's a gift that my wife gave to me. And so you say, yeah, okay, thanks, and you borrow my Bible, but you kind of forget. You just kind of leave it out somewhere and you lose it. You come back the next week and you say, you know, you're really sorry, but you lost my Bible, um, but that, you know, you're going to buy me a new one and uh, that, that you're really sorry and you ask me, can you forgive me? What are my choices? I think I have three choices. One, I can refuse your apology and make you suffer. Right? Maybe I'll borrow something from you and lose it. Maybe I will tell other people, you know, how careless, you're, how careless you are and how you should not be trusted with anything of value. Maybe I'll take you to court and sue you in an extreme case, right? In any case, if I don't forgive you, that's my option one, then our friendship can never, our relationship can never be restored. But, but that's one option. I can just, you know, make you feel guilty and make you suffer as best as I can. Second option that I have is I can pretend that it doesn't bother me. I can just say, yeah, it's okay. It's just, a, it's just a Bible. I can get another one from Amazon. It's no, it's no big deal. And fake forgiveness, but inside I will be angry and seething with resentment towards you. So our relationship will be superficially restored, but not really. Or I can accept your apology and take the loss upon myself. I don't deny that I lost something valuable or that you lost something valuable. I don't deny that I'm feeling you know, hurt and angry and sad. But I choose, for the sake of our relationship, to forgive and to take the loss upon myself. I accept that I've lost something precious that is painful, right? So, so in forgiving you, all of that doesn't just go away. But in order for us to be friends again, I choose that loss for myself, and I release you from the guilt and from what is owed to me. I think those are my three choices. Now, it's easy with a book. It would be easy for me, if it's a book, to say it's no big deal, and to genuinely mean that, and to forgive you, and, and we can move on. Because that suffering and that loss is pretty, it's pretty minimal in the big scheme of things. But what if it's something much more serious? What if someone stabs you in the back or throws you under the bus? What if someone you know, has really hurt you emotionally in some way when someone has betrayed you? 
then, it, then it's much more difficult to forgive because the amount of suffering, the amount of loss that you have to take upon yourself to restore that relationship is just so great. And sometimes it may seem impossible or unbearable. And I think this is why, you know, genuine forgiveness is so difficult because the greater the suffering, the greater the injustice, the greater the loss, it's, it's, just, it's just so difficult to bear to willingly take on that kind of loss. But in forgiving, when you make that choice to let go of your rights to the justice and to take upon yourself the pain and the suffering, that is what makes possible a reconciliation, a restoration, atonement. This is not, you know, self-pitying or, you know, self-martyrdom, you know, woe is me. But it's a genuine release in freedom of what is owed for the sake of restoring that relationship to the fullest. And the gospel and the cross remind me that there is no genuine forgiveness without suffering. You can't have it without suffering. Someone has to suffer loss. And I think this is why God can't simply just forgive without suffering somewhere. Because even we have this sense that some level of suffering is required of us to forgive one another, then how much more does God have to endure in order to forgive us? We forget the depth of our sin against God and therefore the depth of God's suffering that is necessary for us to be forgiven. Forgiveness is not cheap for God. He can't just wave it away. As powerful as God is, he can't just wave it and wish it away. Earlier in the catechism, you know, I try to impress upon you the seriousness of sin, the seriousness of sin and the depth of our core sinfulness. I know that people today think of themselves generally as good people, but, but that's simply not true. The Bible says we all have sin and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And that that is, that is at the core of who we are. That's not a popular thing to say. And I know it's offensive to our current cultural sensibilities. But until you can come to terms with your sinfulness, you cannot be saved. Until you acknowledge your need of a savior, God's love that leads him to the cross will be merely foolishness. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the wisdom and the power of God. Well, what does that mean for us? I I think that, very simply, we ought to have a profound sense of joy and confidence in our living. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. His death, his substitutionary atonement on the cross means life and eternal life for us. That God in his sovereign mercy and justice has acted decisively once and for all in Jesus Christ to save us. So if at any time you are feeling guilty or you are, you're tempted by doubts and despair, you have to remember this. Remember this 
Hold fast to this truth that Jesus Christ died for your sins. If you ever wonder and doubt God's love for you, you have to trust this word and not what you're feeling at the moment. Christ died for your sins. He paid the ultimate price. Right? The, the, the greatest price that anybody could possibly pay has been paid. And that ought to give us confidence that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, help us to place our trust in this finished act that you have done for us on the cross, that you have died for our sins to bring us back to God, and that we are being saved, that this is, a, this is our present reality as well as a future hope. We are being saved, that this is your work. This is your work. And so, God, we understand that you have done all this for us. So help us to then to hold fast to this message, to take on the responsibility collectively to testify of this good news, to know that each and every one of us is here in part because we have experienced an encounter with you of forgiveness, an experience that the rest of this body needs to hear for its edification. God, we know that Paul is not the last witness that we are your ongoing witnesses of the good news because we have experienced forgiveness. Help us to hear and remember this word. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he has been raised and we are his witnesses. Help us to trust this word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.